Hi everyone and welcome back to Eliminal Space, a podcast that seeks to reimagine the world in which we live through conversations with people around the globe who are crossing borders and pushing boundaries with their work, their art and their thought. Today I'm in discussion with Sheldon Solomon. Sheldon is an experimental social psychologist at Skidmore College in the United States. He's the co-developer of Terror Management Theory and co-author of the book, The Worm at the Core, on the role of death in life. Sheldon's life work is based on the concept that our knowledge and fear of death is at the core of the human experience and condition, and the hidden motive behind almost everything that we do, how we see the world and the decisions that we make. His work is deeply rooted in compassion, peace and love, and has really made a big impact on me. So it was a great honour to be able to have this chat with Sheldon and now to be able to share it with you. Before we begin, to hear more of these episodes, subscribe on your favourite podcast platform, leave a review and feel free to give it a rating. Five stars would be amazing. And now, here is my discussion with Sheldon Solomon. Hi Sheldon, uh, welcome to Illuminal Space. Uh, thank you, David. It's great to be here. Um, I've just finished reading your book, The Worm at the Core, and I thought the best way to start would be to, to ask you directly, what is it about death and our fear of death that you believe makes it the worm at the core of the human condition? Yeah, wow. Or, yeah, great question and a good way to start. Um, basically, the worm at the core is a phrase that uh, we grabbed from William James, the American philosopher who uh, in the 1890s, I believe, um, that was his um, phrase to describe death. He called it the worm at the core uh, of the human experience. Uh, and a few decades later in the 1970s, a, a cultural anthropologist named Ernest Becker in a book called The Denial of Death he picked up on that idea. And this is where um, I, I got introduced to these notions. I was a young professor in the 1980s, and I, I saw uh, this book, The Denial of Death, where Becker just says it is uh, uh, that people are unique because on the one hand, uh, like all other um, living things, we'd like to stay alive. On the other hand, unlike all living things, we're smart enough to know that that basic biological imperative is ultimately doomed to fail, which is just a fancy way of saying we're smart enough to know uh, that we're going to die someday. And we know it way before it's likely to happen, even when our lives are not in danger. And so what Becker argued is that um, most of us uh, would literally be paralyzed by existential anxiety. If that's the only thing uh, we thought about, you know, I'm going to die, I can walk outside and, you know, get hit by uh, a comet or smote by a virus, and um, that um, just it would be overwhelming uh, to have to bear those existential excruciations. And so uh, what Becker says is that, what we do to manage that existential terror is to just really um, embrace what he called cultural worldviews, beliefs about the world uh, that give us, gives us a sense that life has meaning and that we have value. And, and so uh, that's my long-winded response to your question. From our point of view, 
um, whether we're aware of it or not, mostly we're not. We spend most of our time on earth trying to maintain confidence in our cultural beliefs, as well as uh, a secure sense that we're valuable people in that particular world. And what was it specifically about Becker's work that, well, can you talk about how you first discovered his work and what was it that made you think that this is, you know, how you want to spend a vast majority of your life going deeper yeah, down the I rabbit hole? I would be happy to do that. Like a lot of things, it was essentially uh, an accident. Uh, I was uh, marching up and down the halls in the library at Skidmore College in upstate New York, where I work then and now. And I, I think I was looking for some books by Freud. But anyway, be that as it may, I, I just noticed um, the titles of these Ernest Becker books. Uh, one of them was called The Birth and Death of Meaning. Right next to it was the other book, The Denial of Death. And right next to that was another book called Escape from Evil. And um, truth be told, what really caught my eye were there were some green dots on the cover of one of the books, you know, which is just silly. But I don't know if I ever would have stopped if I, if I didn't see these little splotches. But anyway, I grabbed this Birth and Death of Meaning book. And in the first paragraph, Becker says, I want to uh, use interdisciplinary study to figure out why people do what they do when they do it. And I was like, yeah, me too, dude. Finally, <laughs> um, you know, after getting a PhD, um, you know, having to suffer through uh, all of these books with this turgid jargon, you know, non-pharmacological interventions for insomnia. Here's a guy just saying, I, I want to understand why people do stuff. And I was like, yeah, me too. And, and then the denial of death book, when I pick that up and in the first paragraph, He's like the, the terror of death, our, our uh, disinclination to accept the reality of the human condition it is the, the prime mover of human affairs. And, and honestly, my immediate reaction was, oh, man, um, this strikes me as true, at least for me, because um, I, I have a longstanding uh, disinclination to die. I'm just not a big fan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah uh, and, um, you know, my tale in that regard is that I remember, you know, being eight years old and it was the day after my grandmother died. And, um, you know, the day before my mother said, oh, you know, grandma's sick and she's not going to be here much longer. And I, I knew that. And so this was a, a, an expected death. But the next day, it was still sad, uh, and I remember um, sitting around, and uh, I was thinking, oh, you know, I'm going to miss my grandmother, and then I was like, oh, but wait a minute, that means my mom's going to get old, and that's not going to end well, and then I used to collect postage stamps back in the day, and I was looking at my stamp collection, and uh, a lot of early U.S. postage stamps are of the uh, dead presidents, George Washington and Thomerson, Thomas Jefferson. And I'm like, wow, look at all the presidents. They're dead, too. And then I was like, oh, but wait a minute. <laughs> you know, I was like, oh, wait, uh, logic dictates that there'll come a time uh, when I, I will be on the cusp of oblivion. 
and I, I just had like this uh, shudder of existential horror. And uh, so I guess, again, my, my um, James Joyce-like length response to your question is part of it was uh, I was captivated uh, by um, Becker's straightforward prose and his insistence that uh, we should um, uh, pursue these broad efforts to understand human behavior, and that's going to require uh, that we cross disciplinary boundaries and that we do that with an eyeball on actually trying to help people. Uh, you know, this may sound like uh, some kind of, um, you know, romantic throwback to the days of Woodstock, but he was kind of an enlightenment guy and he thought we should really uh, uh, try and use ideas to foster personal growth and social progress. So I was like, yeah, yeah, I, I like that. But then it was also quite personal. I, I realized that, uh, that when he says that concerns about our own mortality uh, perfuse our lives uh, on many levels, I was like, I believe that to be true, at least for myself. It's fascinating to hear how, uh, as a child, you know, you had these experiences and then maybe you were destined to find the three green dots on the book and, and that your life. <laughs> there you go. And here we are having, having this chat. It's really <clears throat> interesting. I, I was only introduced to your work a few months ago, um, but I can say that your work and discovering it for me had quite a similar impact. Um, thoughts that I'd probably had, but, but hearing um, you speak about these things, and I've just finished reading The Worm at the Core, and it's an incredible incredible piece of work. I've, I haven't yet read The Denial of Death, but I bought that in the past week, and I'll be sitting down to to go to go much deeper um but obviously in the i think that's the early 80s was it that's right it, it was in the early 1980s yes and what was the how was it considered back then like was this something radical was it did people think you were crazy was it cutting edge or were your ideas sort of broadly accepted no it was the cutting edge of crazy so on the from the perspective of academic psychologists uh, ernest becker um, won a Pulitzer Prize for the, the book, The Denial of Death, um, but had trouble uh, getting academic jobs um, because he was considered a, a not particularly serious scholar by any specific academic discipline. So he crossed them all and was somewhat uh, therefore repudiated by each of them. The main concern um, from the perspective of, of psychologists um, was just that uh, it seemed highly speculative, uh, derived from existential philosophy and psychoanalytic work. It was based on claims that most of what's happening psychodynamically is quite unconscious. And so people just said, this has got to be uh, bullshit. Some people said, well, I don't think about death all that much. And, and so therefore, these ideas must be wrong. And, and, and of course, when we would say to them, well, you don't think about death all that much, because you're comfortably ensconced in your cultural worldview, which gives you a sense that life has meaning and that you have value. 
otherwise, you know, you'd be a twitching blob of biological protoplasm, you know, cowering under your chair, groping for a sedative. But of course, you don't win <laughs> arguments that way because you're like, oh, you, either you agree with me and I'm right or you disagree uh, and I'm right. And so um, and then we were young and annoying. So my buddies, Jeff Greenberg and Tom Pazinski and I, we stumbled on these ideas, you know, as young professors uh, in the 1980s. Uh, and not lacking in self-confidence, but very much lacking in tact and diplomacy, we would go around uh, our first conference presentation about these ideas. We, we called it the uh, psychopathology of social psychology. So we went to a social psychology conference and we're like, wow, why don't social psychologists study anything interesting? And our argument, which sounds kind of glib, and in fact, we were at the time, we just said, well, it seems like what experimental psychologists do is to confine the questions that they ask to the limitations of the methods that we have at our disposal. We said, why don't we, uh, why don't we just frame our questions first and, and then we can work out the empirical corroboration of them. Uh, and, and to which people said, well, okay, then do it. Then, then if there are merits to these arguments, uh, then step up and show it. And honestly, David, we had two reactions at the time. One of them was to resist a bit on the grounds that um, uh, we don't think that there's just one way uh, of evaluating the merits of a declarative statement about reality. And so in a sense, we were chafing at this idea uh, that people won't consider um, any idea seriously in the absence of a, of a body of evidence produced uh, by a specific scientific tradition all right, on the other hand, that is the tradition that we were trained in. It has been fantastically successful in lots of domains. And so when people said to us, you know, prove it, we were like, well, all right. Um, you know, I, I used to say in the early 1980s, I got a PhD unscathed by knowledge, uh, armed with a method in search of a question. We had all of these sophisticated methodological skills and statistical skills. And so here was a way, uh, you know, to put them to use. And yeah. so for almost 40 years now, that's pretty much what we've been doing. Um, uh, specifically, what we call terror management theory that we write about in the Worm book is our effort to just frame Becker's ideas in a way, and I'll degenerate into psychobabble for a moment, but we wanted to frame them theoretically so that we can use them to derive hypotheses that we can then assess empirically. Uh, English translation, we wanted to see if there, uh, if we could find proof for those ideas. Yeah, and I, I find your methodology absolutely fascinating. I guess I'm not an academic, and what I loved about um, your process and, and the way it's documented in your book is this um, experimental way of not just 
um, intellectualizing things, but really experimenting and this idea of death reminders. I mean, this is a, a, this is a genius, you know, a genius way of really getting at the core of, of, of what people are thinking, whether they're actually aware of it or not. Can you talk about this death reminder concept? Yeah, and no, I, I would be happy to. And, and actually, um, yeah, thank you, David. We're, we're proud of this work. Um, I'm not going to uh, necessarily subscribe to the notion that it's genius, but it is a testament to the people who trained us. We were the lucky beneficiaries uh, of being um, the students of really the originators of experimental social psychology. And, and what we learned from our mentor, uh, a guy named Jack Brum, he, he was like, you know what? Uh, keep it simple at first. Just Just see if you're on the right track. And we took that to heart because basically people said to us, okay, Ernest Becker's saying that your beliefs about reality serve to reduce death anxiety. You know, how could you possibly prove that? And truth be told, we really didn't have any idea. And here's another example, uh, honestly, of where the way science works is not anything like how you see it in textbooks because you know you read a book about science and it's as if everything's planned and everything happens in this linear progression on an inexorable path to truth but we had no idea how we would do that and then like a lot of things we we got lucky we we had a student jeff greenberg had a student at the university of arizona a graduate student and, and she came back from a social work class one day and she said oh you know uh, in our social work class it was a death and dying class uh, we have to write our own obituary and then she's like wow and then to get us in the mood to do that our teacher said why don't you look at these two questions? Uh, and it was just jot down briefly your thoughts and feelings about your own death. And then the next question was, you know, what do you think is going to be going through your head at, at the moment that you're dying? And my buddy, Jeff Greenberg, he saw that and he's like, that's it. And I'm like, what is it? <laughs> and he's like, look, Flea Dick, here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to bring people into the lab and we'll have some people respond to those questions. So we call it mortality salience, but that just is jargon for we're gonna remind them uh, that they're gonna die. And then we'll ask other participants the same questions, but not about death. Rather, we'll ask them something, uh, we'll ask them to think about something unpleasant, but not fatal. Uh, you're going to the dentist and you're going to be in extreme pain. You've been in a car accident uh, and they had to cut off one of your legs. Things like that. Uh, you've been humiliated in public, all negative, uh, but not fatal. Because we want to show that whatever might be happening is this singular result of concerns about you dying uh, rather than uh, something else bad uh, happening. And our thought very simply was, if Becker's right, then when we ask, when we remind people that they're going to die, 
they should cling more tenaciously to their culturally constructed beliefs. And we should be able to determine that uh, by assessing their reactions to other people. Uh, and more particularly, what we should find is that when you're reminded that you're going to die, you should like other people who share your beliefs or who support them a whole lot more. And you should hate and even harm if given an opportunity to do so. Uh, people who are opposed to your beliefs or who are merely different. Uh, and th then, and I'll, I'll, we can talk about some of the experiments in, in just a bit, uh, but it turns out over the years that that's not the only way that we remind people of their mortality. So sometimes we have them watch movies uh, where they watch car accidents or people being electrocuted. Sometimes we bring them, we, we do these experiments outside of the lab uh, where we stop people either right in front of a funeral home or a hundred meters to either side. And, and again, our thought is, is that if you're standing in front of a funeral home, death may be on your mind, even if you don't even know it. And, and then like the one that I still find the most astonishing, honestly, David, is when we go back to the lab and we park people in front of a computer and they're reading stuff. And while they do that, we flash the word death for like 48 milliseconds or 42 milliseconds so fast that you can't even see anything. In the control condition, we flash the word pain or, or feel sometimes. So anyway, there's thousands of studies now and regardless of how you remind people of their own mortality, uh, they show a, a, an incredibly wide range uh, of effects. Uh, and uh, and I'll, I'll talk about just a, a few and then I'll, I'll shut up just to give folks a, a sense because the first thing that we were interested in back 40 years ago, we wanted to figure out why people can't get along with other human beings that don't share their beliefs about reality. And, and we, were, um, uh, we were persuaded by Becker's rather simple argument that if my own beliefs about reality serve to diminish death anxiety, then when I run into somebody who's different, whether I'm aware of it or not, I've got a problem. Because if I accept an alternative depiction of reality, then I'm undercutting my own. So if I believe God created the earth in six days, the Fulane and Molly believe the earth's created out of a giant drop of milk. But if they're right, then I've got to be wrong. And so what Becker said is when we run into people who are different, we denigrate them, we demonize them, we dehumanize them, um, we try to compel them uh, to adopt our beliefs, and if that doesn't work, we just exterminate them, thus proving that our God and our beliefs are superior after all. And, and so in some of our early studies, in accord with that view, we found that, uh, for example, Christians reminded that they're going to die. They like Christians a lot more, but they hate Jewish people. In Israel, uh, uh, Jews reminded that they're going to die. They love Jewish people more, and, and they hate Arabs and Christians. Ditto all over the world. But it's not only attitudes. When Germans are reminded uh, of their mortality, they sit closer to fellow Germans and further away from people 
who look like they're immigrants. Iranians reminded of death are more supportive of suicide bombers, more willing to become one themselves. Americans reminded of death are more supportive of using uh, nuclear and chemical and biological weapons against countries who do not currently threaten us. And this is particularly true uh, of conservative uh, Americans. But the, but the point is, is that that's one domain uh, where we feel like there's now a considerable body of evidence in support of the view that existential anxieties underlie or at least amplify uh, our uh, tendency, uh, uh, sadly, as human beings uh, to be intolerant or worse of people that are different than us. And do you believe this tendency is innate in humans? Like, are we born with this uh, tendency or is this something that we that we develop and learn uh, through life? And, and what about across different um, nationalities, different age groups, different cultures, indigenous versus non-indigenous? Yeah, great question. So the my silly answer is all of the above. Uh, and what I mean by that is we are born uh, with an innate tendency to favor our in-group. Uh, and this is uh, a result, this is of necessity. It's the result of being, this has nothing to do with existential anxiety so much as that uh, we are uh, cultural animals uh, and are, are thereby the beneficiaries uh, of thousands of years of accumulated cultural knowledge. Uh, and the bottom line is, is that none of us would be able to survive for more than a day on the basis of our individual prowess, intelligence, or physical strength. Um, we're here today uh, because all of the things that we've learned over thousands of years uh, are, are still with us. Right? And in fact, culture is smarter than all of us. We do stuff every day of uh, the reasons for which we know not why. And the point that the evolutionary psychologists make is that there's gotta be a strong tendency to favor one's in-group in order to stabilize and maintain bodies of cultural knowledge in order to pass them on over time. I don't know if that makes any sense, but whether we like that or not, uh, it's true. Before little babies can stand walk or talk, uh, they show a marked preference for those who look and sound like them. And, and what some folks have suggested, and I believe them to be fundamentally right, is that outgroup hostility, it, it may be an unfortunate byproduct uh, of the tendency to favor the in-group it may also have arisen as a, a strategy to foster intergroup competition. So we don't need to like any of this, but some degree of hostility to people who are different, we may come into the world um, like that. It doesn't follow from that though, uh, that uh, we all uh, need, uh, you know, turn into uh, fanatical serial killers. Uh, and 
So I like a guy, Amin Malouf, in a book called Ooh, Identity, uh, In a Name of Identity, Violence and the Need to Belong in the 1990s. Uh, and he's an interesting gentleman. He's a, a Lebanese Christian who lives in Paris, writes in France. But his point is, is that, um, you know, we've got, we, we, we are fundamentally tribal creatures. And, uh, but it is when we are threatened existentially that we get to the point where we view life as a zero-sum game in which my own success is predicated on someone else's misfortune. And so um, this raises an important question for the future, and that is, um, is it possible uh, to... Um, be attached to one's in-group um, without the need to denigrate or disparage another. Alternatively, and even better, uh, is it possible to the extent that human beings enjoy existing as a species, can, uh, is, is it possible for us to expand uh, our definition of who we are uh, because to the extent that we all identify uh, as uh, members of the same species, um, that would be even better because then all of these innate pro-social tendencies that are in fact magnified uh, under threat, they can be harnessed to bring out the best in us. That's exactly what I was thinking when I was reading your book, this idea that well, the question I had is, is, how has it occurred that we have these in and out groups? And I'll give an example. I spent a lot of time in, in Papua New Guinea. Um, small islands, 7 million people, more than 900 cultural groups, language groups. And you can have a situation where you have a river and you have one tribe on one side, another tribe on the other side, speaking different languages, having different cultures and are at war. Now, how is it possible that we're seeing that as the other, as opposed to seeing us at, like, like instead of saying we're one tribe and the, and the group on the other side of the river is one tribe, how is it possible that we haven't come to the conclusion that as a species, we are the tribe, uh, humans are the tribe, and, and we are on path perhaps to exterminate ourselves, thinking that we're not part of a greater whole that we're just a whole lot of tribes competing against each other yeah no no br brilliant david i i think uh, without sounding defensive on behalf of humankind i think for most of our history we didn't have the luxury to step back and, and to see us as you most eloquently depicted it a, a second ago um the our uh, and I'm saying this not as an expert, but rather as an interested dilettante. I've been reading a lot about um, cultural evolution and, and um, I don't like seeing any of these things, but evidently back in the day, you know, different cultures, different groups uh, under very challenging environmental conditions competed with each other uh, for uh, limited resources. Mm -hmm. And so, in an ancestral environment where you spent most of your waking moments trying to, you know, stuff a dead squirrel in your mouth, uh, didn't have, uh, and all you knew is that those other people across the river, if you let your guard down, 
uh, we're going to run over and, and steal your food and your wives or enslave your kids, um, you didn't really have the time uh, 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 and, uh, or it, even uh, perhaps some would argue uh, the subjective capacity to view oneself detached from uh, one's own uh, clan or tribe uh, to render this notion of a common humanity possible. And in fact, uh, uh, some people argue that, you know, until Christianity arose, that was the first um, uh, truly ecumenical cosmopolitan religion where it's like everyone, it's a big tent. Uh, everyone is uh, welcome to be. And, and so uh, maybe, um, it, maybe it, we're only now at a point in our history by virtue of technology as well as necessity um, where uh, we better figure out um, how to reconceive of ourselves in that fashion. I mean, for one thing, at least empirically, we know that to be the way to go. My, my buddy Tom and his students uh, did some experiments using what they call a common humanity prime. And all that is is that uh, in a study, they tell some people, you know what? Humans all over the world, we are a whole lot more similar than we are different. And even if it sounds silly or corny, you know, we are one big family, which has the benefit of being true in that humans are really a, a homogeneous species. Every one of us came from a small original band of creatures um, in Africa, uh, I'm told. And so that has the virtue of being true. Anyway, when we do that, and then we remind people that they're going to die, they don't hate somebody from another country, because presumably they have now been at least momentarily reminded uh, of our commonality with our fellow humans. Uh, and um, to me, um, this would be almost, um, uh, you know, uh, on the to-do list for planet Earth, that would probably be um, the point number one is to uh, start to forge a common identity uh, as fellow human beings, because whether we like it or not, um, you know, if, if this is maybe obvious, but, uh, you know, the pandemics of the world, the, which is, by the way, a minor inconvenience, I'm told, compared to the incoming environmental apocalypse that will happen in the next decade, you know, on top of a, a global economic order that when it collapses is apt to crush all of Earth. Anyway, the problems, the challenges that uh, now confront uh, the human species are ones that while surely have to be attended to at the local level, equally surely require attention that will span, uh, you know, all countries. Uh, and, um, but unfortunately that's, as you know, not the way the world is currently drifting. So here we are needing uh, to be more and more alike. Uh, and that's against the rising tide of kind of populist nationalist movements that are trying to differentiate us. And that does not bode well for the future of humanity. Yeah, I share your slightly pessimistic views on the future, sadly. Um, 
You know, I think that reading um, about these death experiments, what was really interesting, it seemed that along with this fear of death, it seemed to be sort of a, I don't know if it's a selfish gene or a, a greedy gene, but, but it's, it seemed to be the fear of me dying which dictated my decisions rather than the fear of my community dying or my, my fellow man, you know, it, it sort of, did you do experiments that also looked at this sort of collective, like people, how, how they feel about not their own mortality, but the, the sort of the, the extermination of the human, human species? Yeah. Yeah, I, there are there is some work there, although I, I'm not as familiar with it as I need to be, David. It's called extinction anxiety, and um, yeah, and I do believe that that's a potent phenomenon. On the other hand, I can't remember. I think it's in the it's in the Ernest Becker book, Denial of Death. You'll get to it when you get there. But early on, he talks about, like Aristotle says. There's nothing more thrilling than when the guy next to you gets hit with the arrow. Mm -hmm. The point being that uh, death is most bothersome because it pertains to us. We have done some studies where we've asked people to ponder somebody else dying, and that doesn't create defensive reactions except if it reminds us in so doing that we too will die. So this is really about, yeah, us. Us. And and is it uh, mainly a, a conscious um, uh, situation or subconscious? Did you find that most participants um, were aware that they had this fear of death and, and that sort of uh, was how they, was such a big part of, of their life and how they made decisions or something that they didn't know? Did, were you able to tell your participants the results and how did they... Well, um, most folks, when we talk to them about these studies, are are quite dumbfounded and um, and um, reluctant to admit that it is even possible that they could be influenced. Let's say by standing in front of a funeral home, or or having the you know death flashed into their brain. Um, no, these these effects are quite subtle and mostly uh, beneath the level of conscious awareness uh, and which raises an important point that we try to write about in our book and that is that um, those kinds of fleeting reminders of death that's very different than the ongoing and protracted and very conscious and deliberative efforts to think about the fact that we're mortal. You know, since antiquity, the philosophers and the theologians in lots of cultures, there are very rich traditions that if you're gonna be able to live fully, uh, you need to accept the reality of uh, your own finitude. So I, I like Albert Camus. Uh, you know, in the 20th century saying, come to terms with death thereafter, uh, anything is possible. Um, and, and so you have the Tibetan book of living and dying. You've got the medieval uh, monks working uh, with the skulls on their desk and so on. And uh, that's important not to become preoccupied uh, with mortality. This is not, the, the goal is not to perseverate uh, about death, 
so much as to uh, be very explicit about recognizing that it is not only inevitable, uh, but potentially eminent in every moment in our lives. Uh, well, that, that brings out the best in us. It's these kind of momentary reminders of death, because what we've shown in our other studies is that uh, what happens automatically uh, when death is, enters our mind is there's active efforts to, to get it out of our uh, minds. And uh, then once that happens, uh, that's when we start bolstering faith in our cultural worldview and trying to boost our self-esteem. Uh, and uh, those are the kinds of, uh, I call them malignant manifestations of death anxiety uh, that uh, are often um, bring out the worst in us, let's say. And do you believe that it's, a, that it's actually our fear of death or it's the fear of the unknown in that we don't know what happens after death? That, I mean, why are we terrified of death? Yeah. Uh, probably, yeah. I, I would say the unknown, but there's a lot of things that I don't know that don't bother me. Yeah. You know, I don't know how many stars are in the sky. Or like my buddy Jeff Greenberg says, you're like, oh, death bothers me because it's uncertain. And he's like, okay, so I'll come to your house at noon tomorrow and kill you. So now you're sure. So what? <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Let me let me rephrase it. No, no, I'd be it silly, but uh, no. Uh, all right. So I'll give you Ernest Becker's response, uh, and I, I don't know where I stand on this. So Becker, uh, he has a lengthy footnote, David, and and he says, look, uh, death is a really complicated, multi-dimensional construct that has potentially very different meaning and concern for different individuals. And, and here it gets a little uh, globby in that, um, uh, that, so what researchers have done is to confirm that that's the case, uh, because what they find is that there are death anxiety scales that have different little what they call subscales. So some people are afraid of death because of the, uh, the unknown aspects. Some are afraid uh, because of the physical um, uh, discomfort with the prospect that worms are gonna be crawling out of where your eyeballs used to be. So there's a physical aspect uh, of death. Other people are primarily concerned uh, about the relational aspects uh, of death. What's going to do to the folks that uh, are left behind? Um, other folks are concerned about their own personal pursuits and, and uh, the fact that they will uh, depart from this world with proverbial and literal unfinished business. And so um, it's a great question. And uh, the short answer is that, yeah, there's, there's a lot going on. But having said all of that, it still comes back in the long run uh, to the, the, the central point, uh, which is the realization uh, of one's own personal mortality 
it is just literally, as Freud put it, it, it is the one thing that does not compute in an uber rational creature driven uh, by, you know, in Freud's language, the id, which is just this biological imperative to keep living. To keep and living. so it, yeah, it's really just, uh, it doesn't, yeah, it's really quite astonishingly incongruent with the desire to live. I think that's, uh, I mean, we can, it, I won't ask you the question because it's an unanswerable question. What's the, the meaning of life, the purpose of life, but I know that, you know, many looking at existential uh, philosophy, sometimes the purpose of life is to make your own purpose in, in life. Yeah. And, and perhaps it's just to, to live, which is the purpose exactly. of, of life. So per perfect, David. I, I, so, you know, Becker, he has this the book, The Birth and Death of Meaning. And the students are always like, you know, what is this dude saying? Birth and death. And my point is, and this is very hard uh, for young students, is he's saying that it's not straightforward because as you, you know, to elaborate on what you were intimating a moment ago, you know, the existentialists say, yeah, life is not intrinsically meaningful. And of course, the first reaction is, oh, put a flaming stick in each of my eyeballs, you know, that's a giant turd in my metaphysical <laughs> punch bowl. Uh, but, but, but it, it does, they're not saying that life is intrinsically meaningless. So there's the, the task as well as the privilege uh, of constructing one's own meaning. All right. But some folks say, and you, you, you just, uh, there's a German philosopher, uh, what was his name, uh, Goethe, or Goethe, as I used to call him, but, but um, and this in the 1700s, uh, and he said something like, the, pur the purpose of life is to live. And sometimes, um, maybe we overthink things that, uh, you know, in our zeal uh, to improve ourselves and the world around us, um, we may make life more complicated than it is in our finest moments when we're just spontaneously exuberant at the prospect of just being here. Yeah. It, it reminds me of something that I was told, so I can't specifically go to, to the source, but um, that, for example, a human cannot drown him or herself. If you attempt to drown yourself, apparently your, your instincts kick, kick in and you actually try to save yourself at, at the same time. So if you try to end your life consciously, you almost won't allow yourself to to do that. So you have to tie a big weight to yourself to actually drop because you're still going to be fighting as an instinct or something much deeper. Maybe it's a evolutionary sort of um, just, yeah, instinct to, to stay alive. Um, yeah. But uh, I mean, look, it, it, I, I think it's absolutely, it's absolutely wonderful to, to ponder these thoughts. The thing that I was thinking about, um, about the unknown was like, we're scared of the dark. But what, yes. we're not actually scared of the color black. We're scared that the dark hides a threat that we can't see. That's, 
we're, we're, we're fearful of deep water, not because we can't swim, but because we can't see the, the baddies that, that, you know, that can come yeah. behind and grab us. No, I think you're onto something. I, I, the, the philosopher Heidegger, and I've been reading uh, his work, although, I, you know, it's hard for me um, uh, because I, I don't have a background in philosophy, but he, he talks about the, he, the German word is angst. And he says, we come into the world, but long before we even know that we're here, and it's often translated as anxiety, but evidently in German, it's a more subtle term that has connotations of like uh, being feeling unsettled and not at home. And so, yeah, the, the darkness and, um, and the night, yeah, has primordial associations um, uh, with the unforeseen, the ultimately unknowable, and thereby uh, fundamentally uh, uncontrollable and always subject to wholesale dissolution. Yeah, we, we stand on uh, tenuous foundations. Yeah, <laughs> which, which sort of the natural progression, I think, is to then talk about religion and faith which includes in many or most religions some idea of what happens after you die, whether that's reincarnation or heaven or, you know, how have your studies um, looked at that, uh, looked at the way that people that, that have a faith have that same fear or does having that faith of an afterlife actually, or that belief in an afterlife, um, lower or even remove an anxiety of death? Yeah, so that, that's a complicated question. The short answer is for some. Uh, and so it gets back to uh, there's a lot going on. In general, um, our argument is that religion does serve for adherence to buffer death anxiety. This is not to say, however, that it is why religion arose or the only thing that it does. It, it seems fairly certain that uh, the original uh, adaptive function of religion was to foster social coordination and, and social cohesion. And it does that uh, extraordinarily well. Our argument is that there came a moment where self-consciousness reached a critical threshold beyond which um, the, the concerns uh, about not dying uh, entered into the picture and uh, immortality uh, ideologies became more central uh, to established religions. Regardless though of the evolutionary argument, what we do know is that when we remind religious people that they're going to die, they become more confident that God exists. They become more confident in the efficacy of prayer and we know that atheists go the other way. So when atheists are reminded that they're going to die, they become less confident that there's a God and less confident that prayer would ever do anything. Right, but there is a caveat, though, and that is that if you remind atheists that they're going to die and you measure their unconscious affection for supernatural beliefs, they say they believe less in God, but unconsciously they become more uh, attracted 
to supernatural concepts. So even atheists, when push comes to shove, they may say that they don't believe in God, but their body is taking respectful issue with that yeah. claim. <laughs> <laughs> and you yourself have, on your own personal journey, well, I imagine doing this, this uh, life work that you've also... It, it's it's prompted you to 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 think deeply about your own life and your own beliefs and um, have you found that your own um, views on death and and perhaps afterlife and so forth has been uh, directly affected by the results of of these experiments that you've done? Yeah, that's awesome. No, not at all. Uh, in fact, uh, most likely the experiments have provided 40 years of, um, of a distraction by turning, uh, by making this into my professional pursuit, I've uh, managed to intellectualize the ideas and in so doing spare myself the burden <laughs> of actually considering them. Now, <laughs> <laughs> all right, having said that, I hope I'm making modest progress. I'm still not a fan of dying. Uh, I like being alive, but uh, I hope that um, I will uh, learn from the folks around me, my, my parents and my wife's parents uh, who, uh, you know, lived and died with uh, grace and dignity. Um, yeah, I, I, I hope I'm getting there. I, I, I hope I am better now when I think about myself, I, I, I try to, from time to time, say, okay, why, why am I doing what I'm doing? You know, did I write a book because I feel like these ideas are important and I hope to share them with other folks in uh, a sincere effort to spread good ideas around? Or is that, frankly, bullshit? And I wrote a book because I want to be uh, rich and famous and end up on TV. Now, it's probably a little bit of both. Um, yeah, but I, I would like to think that, um, that, that engaging with these ideas uh, have pushed me further uh, in, in the direction of, of having profited from them. Yeah, I'm sure. We, so many others have, have, have benefited from, from, from reading and understanding your work. So including myself, I thank you very much for, for that. Um, one of the things that I didn't expect to read in your book was about self-esteem. And you've mentioned it once today, but um, if you don't mind, I might read a, just a, a short sentence or a couple of sentences no, from go right ahead. The Worm at the Core. It is deeply disturbing to have one's fundamental beliefs called into question, take our meanings and purposes away, characterize them as juvenile, useless or evil, and all we have left are the vulnerable physical creatures that we are, because cultural conceptions of reality keep a lid on mortal dread, acknowledging the, legitim the, acknowledging the legitimacy of beliefs contrary to our own, unleashes the very terror that those beliefs serves to quell. So we must parry the threat by derogating and dehumanizing those with alternative views of life, by forcing them to adopt our beliefs and co-opting aspects of their cultures into our own, or by obliterating them entirely. Such a 
powerful, um, such a powerful paragraph and this idea that our self-worth and our self-esteem is threatened greatly by um, perhaps being wrong and another worldview being, being right. And, and I, yeah. I guess that's also the, the basis of, of a history of colonization, I guess, of people coming and, and telling others that their gods are wrong, their language is wrong, their, you know, even the color of their skin is wrong in, in, in lots of ways. I wonder if you can sort of talk, talk to that. Well, no, that's, you just did it. That's really, you know, in a, in a proverbial nutshell, uh, Becker's account uh, of uh, why we find ourselves now in difficult straits and why uh, another guy I'm fond of, Robert J. Lifton, um, in a book called Destroying the World to Save It, it was Lifton who said that we may be the first form of life to be responsible for our own extinction by virtue of our incapacity to arrest that very process, which is to react um, to people who are different as if they pose an existential threat uh, to our very existence. And there's one study, David, that we write about in the book, and we didn't do it, which is even better because frankly uh you know everyone's fond of their own ideas and so um and so when we started doing these experiments back in the day and we were the only ones doing them you know that was interesting but it only becomes science when other people get interested and they start uh replicating these ideas and extending them in interesting directions with one of our students uh, who's now a professor himself jeff schimmel um, he's at the University of Alberta, and they did a, a remarkable study uh, where Christians, uh, Christians in Canada, um, they, uh, they read uh, an article. So basically, they were reminded of death or not, just like all of our studies, basically. And then some of them uh, read an article uh, about uh, Muslims going to a pilgrimage in Mecca and, and they were on a plane uh, and while they were flying there uh, the plane crashed and all of the Muslims on the plane died uh, and it's it's a complicated study but the, the, the but the part of it that for our purposes is very simple is that Christians who read about a plane load of Muslims dying, when they were reminded of their own death, their own death anxiety was lower. In other words, the death of our enemies reduces my own death anxiety. I can't think of a more ominous finding uh, for the future well-being of humankind. Uh, and hence the urgency uh, of... Uh, yeah, back to our earlier conversation, you know, hence the utter need uh, to really broaden the scope of, of this idea of we. Mm. Um, there's a, an author I like, she's dead, uh, Doris Lessing, a novelist, she's South African, and uh, she uh, wrote books in the early 1980s, and they were science fiction, like set in space in, you know, many centuries uh from now and um you know there and there are these like creatures that are at war all the time 
and Doris Lessing, she talks about, she called it the substance of we feeling, you know, S-O-W-E. And it's, you know, again, it's a, a little silly, but not. She's like, look, uh, things get bad uh, whenever, uh, for whatever reason, uh, we lose track of our common humanity. Hmm. And, uh, and when we wrote that passage, in the book that is um i, I wrote that I, I sometimes you you know writing doesn't come easy to me. uh talking comes easy uh but, but not writing oh there's our serial killing dog so but um well anyway we're, i wrote that and i was like jeez wow if that's true we're doomed yeah I felt exactly the same way. I felt all the hairs in my arms raised yeah, yeah. as you said that. That's sort of a, a surefire way to our own extinction. So what can people that are watching and listening to this, what can we do? You know, what can, what, what can we do to, to improve the we and to kind of try to eliminate this idea of us and them and the other? Are there, are there things that, that, that academics can do? Are there things that filmmakers can do? I mean, I, I attempt to do that in my own filmmaking by showing the um, shared humanity across, across people. You know, but and that would be my, my view is, yeah, everyone's got to pursue this in their own way through their own means. And I'm saying that in part because I have no idea. Mm how to proceed. Um, and yet, um, I know how not to proceed. You know, it's not going to be egghead professors like me writing academic papers that six people will read. I think that uh, it's the artists, it's folks like you that are moved by these ideas that are going to be able to present them in ways that engage the average individual's imagination and, and uh, because, you know, people were naturally storytellers and we love to hear stories. Um, we're not naturally literate creatures. We're reluctant readers, but we like visual and auditory stimuli. So uh, I, 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 even if this sounds naive, I think the hope is that um, these ideas are sufficiently compelling that step one is to put them in general circulation. Like Ernest Becker in his Escape from Evil book, he's like, I, I wish everyone would just hear these ideas. He's like, how come um, there's not somebody at the United Nations just explaining this to world leaders? Uh, and and I... I've always thought that that's what we set as our task because we've always said there's nothing original about our work. The only thing that's original is we don't claim that it's original. We just feel like these ideas have merit and that one possibility is that if they were sufficiently injected in public discourse, that there would be a critical uh, inflection point uh, where folks would step back and say, wow, I mean, you sort of did. That's why we're talking. I did when I first bumped into these ideas. I thought the same thing that you said earlier, David. I was like, this, 
puts into words things I've been thinking about, but haven't been able to articulate. And um, beyond that, I, I don't have much more to my discredit to offer, except let's get these notions in circulation um, and point out that it is not silly or naive to argue at least abstractly on behalf of the claim uh, that uh, humanity's future is in part dependent on our capacity to again expand the scope of who we are. I think that's on solid ground from an evolutionary as well as an existential perspective. Yeah, well, it gives me hope. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it gives me hope that, um, you know, you were able to look beyond yourself and, and you continue to sort of look at, at the bigger picture and you as part of a, uh, an us and a we rather than than tribal and obviously education is a key part of this as well and it seems a, a sort of a it's counterintuitive the more the world has opened with the internet and 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 with social media um, that was supposed to have joined us together but it seems to be day by day becoming more polarizing in 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 lots of ways yeah that's a um that'll have to get together again for talking about that because that could take us another few hours that it is a peculiar moment in time in part i would submit because of that technology which has the capacity to liberate and transform the planet as well as to reduce us into a smoldering heap that could go either way yeah yeah. yeah, I read with fascination um, what you wrote about September 11 being a huge death reminder and how things very quickly changed in only a matter of weeks about public perception of US leaders at the time and, and so forth. I mean, that was probably a once in a generation or even more death reminder. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Uh, we... Um... Well, I was in Manhattan that day, and so it was another one of these very personal experiences. But um, what happened shortly after September 11th, 2001, um, is uh, George W. Bush was president in the U.S., and his approval rating went from the lowest in the history of polling in our country to the highest three weeks later. Uh, and um, and this was after President Bush um, responded to those events by saying we will rid the world of evil and that he believed God had chosen him to lead the country at this time. And that reminded us of Max Weber, a German sociologist who said in the early part of the 20th century that in times of historical upheaval, we tend to embrace a certain kind of political leader. He called, Weber called them charismatic leaders, like seemingly larger than life individuals that um, often are believed or believe themselves to be divinely ordained to rid the world of evil. And, and we were like, wow, 
it sounds like uh, President Bush is a, a charismatic leader. Maybe Americans uh, are thrilled with him right now, not because he did anything great, but because these are the kinds of leaders that we embrace under these circumstances. And so we did a bunch of studies in 2003 and four. Uh, where we showed that Americans really didn't care for President Bush all that much unless you reminded them that they were going to die first and, and then they liked him a lot. And, and we found the same thing um, in 2016 uh, with now President Trump, who uh, also said um, basically, uh, I'm the only one that can save you uh, from, I'm going to build a wall to keep the immigrants out, uh, and uh, we're going to bomb the shit out of ISIS, and so the terrorists won't be here, uh, forgetting for the moment that there was no threat of terrorism, nor were immigrants actually harming the country, but that doesn't matter. What matters is if you perceive that you're being threatened. And the same thing happened in 2016. We found that uh, in studies that Americans liked Hillary Clinton more than Donald Trump, except if you reminded them of their mortality first, uh, and then they liked Trump uh, a lot more. And uh, same thing, by the way, in the last election, uh, even though uh, Joe Biden won, and that is that for white people, in the study that we did right before the election, uh, they liked Biden a lot more than Trump uh, in a control condition, but they liked Trump a lot more than Biden if death was on their mind. And uh, so we're in a very curious moment in our history uh, because here we are in the middle of a virus which reminds people of death all the time. Uh, and President Trump, I call him Orange Hitler, not out of any fondness, uh, his approval rating has never been higher, despite him being grotesquely incompetent. And that's just a factual statement. I say that on the basis of his mishandling uh, of the virus. And yet, um, the, his support amongst Americans uh, remains uh, frankly, obscenely high. And our explanation for that uh, is that death anxiety uh, is such that his supporters cling to him tenaciously, even though he's literally killing them. So it's no different than uh, the Jimmy Jones guy in Guyana. Uh, you know, here was a cult leader who said, drink the Kool-Aid. And now uh, we've got the orange Kool-Aid. So you've got Trump saying to his supporters, um, you need to only weaklings wear masks and the virus is, is just going to go away. And so if you're a good American, uh, you'll just run around uh, without a mask outside uh, licking your neighbor while you scream and yell. <laughs> Uh, and, and what have you continued your studies into 2020? I mean, we're in this sort of if, if yeah. September 11 was a, 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 a huge death reminder. My, my personal take on what's happening this year is that 
in the so-called, um, I'm, I'm in Australia at the moment, in the so-called developed world, for many of us, um, we always thought that threats were something that happened to someone else or somewhere else or, you know, I believe that for many of us, it's the first time that we've had to face the, the prospect of our own mortality, That's right. whether that be yes. someone young or someone old. And I would be interested to know how you think that will manifest both currently and also in the future, because in your book, you talk about this idea that this fear has a sort of a, a continued, um, uh, it, it, it's not just the current, it, it goes into the, into the future as well. So how do you see this year playing out and in the, in the coming years? Yeah. Wow. Great question, David. I, I, um, based on, some of the epidemiological work. I think there's going to be a large chunk of humanity in the developed world that are going to have PTSD-like symptoms for the better part of a decade. The, the, the social isolation and economic insecurity is going to crush a, a chunk of folks. I, I, I haven't been paying attention in Australia uh, I do know in the U.S., for example, that about 25% of the adults in the U.S. are showing signs uh, of PTSD. So that's going to be one chunk of, of humanity. There's going to be another chunk of humanity that doesn't have the luxury of PTSD because they're going to be wanting to have a place to sleep and maybe something to eat. And so that's going to create uh, another boatload of daunting difficulties. I see another chunk of humanity uh, just uh, entering cults and lunatic fringes. Um, so I think we're going to see extreme political uh, polarization, religious fanaticism. And then there's going to be another chunk of humanity if there's a vaccine and if it works and if we can move around in a year. Uh, my fear is that half of the people in the developed world will then carry on a year from now as if nothing has happened, thus ensuring that we've learned nothing from this experience and that uh, Lifton may be right about us being the first form of life to be responsible for our own extinction. Oh, uh, Kierkegaard, you'll read about this in the, the Denial of Death book. He just says that one way that we deal with death anxiety is we tranquilize ourselves with the trivial. And so I can see a big, um, a whole lot of that, which we're all prone to. I, I suspect all of us have, uh, you know, maybe watched too much TV or too many silly, whatever distractions that uh, we use. Uh, but for some folks, that'll be the sole focus of their lives. Yeah. I, and yet, let me not, though, just leave it at that, because then I think there's another chunk of humanity that has been jolted, that, that the existential anxieties that, as you put it, David, that I'm sitting here, I've led a privileged life. <laughs> Excuse me. You know, my parents, they lived through. Uh, the depression and my relatives like through the Holocaust and stuff. My biggest problem in my life is, oh, what color shirt am I going to wear? Uh, not am I going to have lunch, but what am I going to eat for lunch? 
Well, yeah, the pandemic was the first time I was like, oh, shit, fuck me. This could maybe not end well. Well, I think for a lot of people, not just old timers, I think for a lot of the youth that the virus like sandblasted away any illusion that they may have had uh, that the world as we know it is stable, tenable, and sustainable in its present form. The, a radical overhaul uh, of our economic and ecological infrastructure is absolutely necessary if humankind as we know it is to persist in the relatively uh, near future. Uh, and so I think there's going to be another clump of humanity uh, that are going to come out of this um, exhilarated uh, and energized uh, and uh, will use this as a, a real opportunity for creative transformation. Now, again, if that makes me naive, then so be it. I'm not saying it's going to not be ugly. Um, you know, I can imagine a world in which 90% of humanity is not with us in a century, uh, but who's to say that that's necessarily a, a bad thing? <laughs> um, you know, it's kind of a somber possibility, uh, but um, I like the folks who kind of, uh, you know, like William Faulkner, all of these, they write novels about how bad things are, but they basically say, uh, I, when Faulkner won a Nobel Prize in literature, when he accepted it, he's like, everybody asked me why I write these novels about everyone fighting and, and all this bad stuff. And he's like, no, I write it because my point is, is that despite all of our foibles and weaknesses, when push comes to shove, humanity has always stepped up. And I believe in my gut that we will not only uh, survive, that, but we will thrive and prosper, even if it takes some interesting and unpleasant detours and I, I, I yeah yeah i'm gonna go with that. go with that well just i'll yeah. give you you may be interested i'm in melbourne in victoria in australia and we had one of the longest and most restrictive lockdowns in the west oh, i know that and we came out of that um well we're, we're slowly coming out of that and we've now had 40 days of zero covid cases Z yep. zero um we did have mandatory masks everywhere and that's been removed in the past week or so but it's been really interesting and i can say a bit shocking to me to see that there is still a percentage and at times a large percentage of people just walking down the street that are still wearing this mask that perhaps six months ago would have been so far from their reality and that's right. they would ne they would have laughed at you if they would have said they'd be there'd be zero cases and you're still walking around with a mask. So I can see there's been a very deep impact of this on people, whether we're conscious of that or not. And I hope that what happens is that we are finally able to, uh, well, I have a fear and a hope. The fear is that in some months, years, hopefully some things get back to normal and we just move on and we forget about these other existential uh, crises that are around us. The hope is that we, we actually look at the, at the whole globe and, and we look at these other 
not just ex existential um, threats to ourselves, but you know, disease, viruses, so forth that are affecting the undeveloped world that we haven't given a hoot about. And now all of a sudden we've found the threat to our own lives and, and we're doing everything in our power to, to make us safe. So I hope that this actually comes into our consciousness and, and makes us more aware, more loving, more um, wanting to see ourselves as part of this greater whole, which includes looking after those that, that aren't as lucky as us to get this vaccine in only a matter of months and so forth, where there are diseases that have been left you know, untouched for, for decades and hardly get any attention, hardly get any funding and so forth. Am I, where are you on this? Are you optimistic or are you pessimistic or let's see what the future will hold? Yeah, I'm, no, I'm consciously optimistic if for no other reason than uh, to be otherwise is just a, a recipe for despair. Yep. And, uh, and uh, no, I am consciously optimistic uh, you know, I, just reading about the 1918 pandemic, um, uh, you know, the so-called Spanish flu, um, you know, that was bad. And people were stupid then as they are now, maybe not in Australia, but in the U.S. there were anti-mask riots. Uh, so um, uh, I think, uh, and, and, and to to be silly, but not as a, a, other folks have pointed out that this is not the first time that we've been in a pandemic. It's not the first time that we've been in a situation where, you know, half of Earth could be possibly summarily obliterated. And yet we've appeared to uh, have made it through those. Um, yeah, let's hope for the best. I'm going <laughs> to. Well, <laughs> I absolutely could spend uh, hours and hours going deeper in these. I'm very conscious of your time and just utterly thankful that you've been so generous with your thoughts, your time. Um, so let me thank you for, for your work. Um, let me thank you for, I think in this world, everything plays a role in the sense that sometimes we need sparks to, to start thought, to start a process. Um, and discovering your work in the last few months has definitely expanded my, my thoughts on, and view on this sort of you know, looking at us and inspired me to, to, to keep going with that. So I thank you for that and also hope that, well, I'm sure that people that both watch and listen to this discussion um, can think more deeply about these, these issues and um, absolutely discover your book, The Worm at the Core, and, and the work of of Ernest Becker. Um, so yeah, I really thank you greatly. And, and I can say you're very much bringing solidarity to this world that, that seems to be becoming more splintered day by day. Yeah, but no, thank you, David. This was a pleasure and um, let's uh, keep going. I look forward to exchanging ideas in the future. Well, maybe the next chat we can go deeper into technology and social media and, and uh, yeah, I would love that. that aspects of it. Great. Sheldon, it's been an absolute honor and pleasure and uh, thanks very much. And uh, yeah, we'll hopefully chat soon. Very good. Okay. All right. Bye, bye. bye now. Many thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, review it with five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen and subscribe to make sure you don't miss an episode. 
and go to aliminalspace.earth to access all episodes available as both video and audio podcasts. But for now, many thanks again, and see you next time in Aliminal Space. Thank you.